morning I want to speak to you about the first Christmas carol, and to read of that we'll turn to Luke, the second chapter, where we'll take as our reading the first 14 verses. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, hear this as the word of God. Now it came to pass in those days that there went out a, a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to enroll themselves, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who was betrothed to him, being great with child. And it came to pass, while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds in the same country, abiding in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign unto you, ye shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, on whom his goodwill resides. And thus far the reading of God's word. Next Sunday evening we're going to celebrate... Um, our Christmas season by having a caroling party here at the church. I don't take this opportunity simply to remind you of that announcement, but I hope that you are taking note of that and it's on your calendars and you'll all be here. In a very real sense, you miss out on something important about Christmas if you don't engage in caroling. Because that first Christmas, as we've just read of in our text tonight, was accompanied by angelic caroling that I think will probably make anything that we sound like uh, pale into insignificance, but nevertheless God bids us to raise our voices and to join with the angels in song if we truly enter into the spirit of this Christmas season. Our opening hymn this morning said, It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, good will to men, from heaven's all-gracious King. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road, and hear the angels sing. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold, when with the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold. When peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. And as the age of gold comes round with the messianic kingdom growing and increasing, the world should more and more give back the song which the angels once sung. 
And in order to do that, in order to carol and to sing as the angels did, I think we need to pay attention to what the angels did once sing and to concentrate on that this morning as we look at the first Christmas carol. In Luke chapter 2, Luke, who is a very skillful writer, I believe, has done something which should arrest our attention. He has brought out the cosmic significance of the birth of this child, Jesus. The cosmic significance, he puts it in the context of world history. He says it is at the time that Caesar Augustus is enrolling the world that these things take place. Not only that, he brings out the cosmic significance of what's happening when he reminds us that angels came from heaven to sing the advent of this child. And yet Luke places that great event with its cosmic significance in lowly circumstances. Here's this wonderful event taking place, and Luke ironically focuses on the manger, the feeding trough where this child is laid. And that those who come to greet him are not the mighty and the powerful of the world, not the rich, not those who um, carry dignity or wealth or a good name, but rather the despised and the lowly, the shepherds, come to greet him. And so this great cosmic significance placed in the circumstances which are so lowly. Verse 1 of our reading today perhaps could take as its theme that God rules in the kingdom of men. Luke wants us to see that God makes use of the decree of a faraway king, a faraway emperor, to bring about the fulfillment of a very specific prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so a faraway Roman emperor is used to bring Mary to Bethlehem so that this prophecy can be fulfilled. Why did Mary come? She came with Joseph, her betrothed husband, to be enrolled. She came so that the family would be enrolled, registered upon the Roman list so that at the time of tax imposition, the taxes could be collected from people. We know from history that Augustus Caesar Augustus, Octavian, <coughs> reformed the administration of the empire and took many a census. Uh, many of these are recorded for us. We don't have a specific decree, speaking of a census of the whole Roman Empire, but it's, it's a logical inference, a natural inference, that since he um, enrolled just about every other location, that it was his universal desire to have that done. Luke records that for us, that the decree went forth that all the Roman Empire should be taxed. However, Judea was at this time, at the time of Christ's birth, a client kingdom of the Roman administration. That may not mean a lot to you, but politically it meant a lot in that day. That meant that Rome didn't have direct taxing power over Judea, that Rome ruled through some figurehead that they would put there. In this case, it happened to be Herod, Herod the Great. Presumably, Judea would have been exempt from a taxation census, therefore. But it turns out, you know, this is just the way the providence of God works, there were strained relations over these periods of years, over this period of years, between Herod and Caesar Augustus. Augustus did not trust Herod. And because of those strained relations, Caesar was known to interfere in the affairs of Judea, and very likely, it would have been a sign of loyalty that Herod would have the area enrolled for the taxation to show that he wasn't fomenting rebellion against Rome. Luke tells us in verse 2 that this took place when Quirinius was first the um, governor 
of Syria. This has been one of the leading historical problems of New Testament research because for all we know, Quirinius did not become the governor of Syria specifically until 6 AD, probably 10 years, a decade after the birth of Jesus. However, it is known that he held something of a roving and extraordinary generalissimo status, if you will, of the East for the Roman Empire that would have included Syria at this time. Later, when he became specifically the governor of Syria itself, which included Judea, a riot broke out, which is referred to in Acts, the fifth chapter, and Josephus tells us about it as well. And so if I can put the whole story together for you, it would appear that Herod, having strained relations with Augustus, is going to have to enroll Judea in this taxation census. At the time, Quirinius is a roving governor of the area and will enforce the enrollment. Later, when he specifically becomes the governor of Syria, he imposes the tax in 6 B, uh, excuse me, A.D., and then a revolt um, comes about because the taxes are now trying to be collected. Verse 3 of our text this morning, Luke tells us that all therefore went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own town. The Roman custom usually taxed upon a person's residence, not upon their ancestry. However, it's also true that persons who held property in another district from their own residence had to return to their ancestral home, and that would appear to be the reason why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. They must have held property of some sort in Bethlehem. And that Mary went is extremely interesting. Most people would say, why would a woman have to go? It's the man who's being taxed. Except if you know Roman custom, that isn't always true. In Syria, for instance, women had to pay the poll tax. Consequently, in this particular case, we must assume that Mary, either to avoid the shame of being alone at the time of the birth of her allegedly illegitimate child, or, and or, to, um, to enroll with Joseph, as the Romans were requiring, went with him to Bethlehem. Verse 4 is very interesting because we read that Joseph went up to Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea right after we've been told all this interesting political background. Joseph was no tax rebel, it's rather obvious. He was a law-abiding citizen. He said, I will go, I will register, even if it's for the draft, even if it's for the paying of my taxes. And this was no mean trip. We're talking about a trip from the countryside of Galilee, Nazareth, up to the hill country of Judea, and it would have been about 90 miles. 90 miles is thought to be a fairly long trip for us when we have automobiles. You can imagine what it was like upon a donkey for a pregnant woman, nine months pregnant. But Mary and Joseph go up to Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew, house of bread, where the bread of life will be born. Bethlehem, David's city, the beloved city of David, where the king of David, the Davidic king, will now be born. Bethlehem, spoken of in Micah 5, verse 2, though it be small out of all the cities round about, yet it is great in the sight of God. For out of Bethlehem will come forth one whose goings forth are from eternity. One will be born who actually has existed from all eternity there in Bethlehem. And so Luke sets the story for us. In verse 5, he says that they went to enroll themselves, 
and that Mary at that time was betrothed to Joseph and yet great with child. You see how delicately he puts it? She would not have gone if she was merely betrothed to him. An engaged woman would not have been required to go. Mary is living with Joseph as a wife, and yet Luke does not call her his wife. He does not say his wife, Mary. Rather, Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph, and she's only called betrothed, only called engaged to him, because obviously the marriage has not been consummated physically. She has not slept with Joseph, and yet, Luke says, she is pregnant. She is great with child. And this is, I think, Luke's very delicate way of pointing to the virgin conception of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7 tell us very briefly, with sparing details, of the birth of Jesus. And it came to pass, while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And that's it. From a human standpoint, in terms of historical detail, that's all. The nine months came round. She brought forth her child, her firstborn, not her only born, not her only begotten child, her firstborn. Obviously, she had children later, contrary to Roman Catholic tradition. But she brought forth her firstborn child and wraps him in swaddling clothes, uh, long strips of cloth that were wrapped around the limbs of children in that day to keep them straight. And that's very important, the way Mary cared for this child, because that would be the sign to the shepherds later, that they'd know this is the child that the angels were speaking of. She wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in a feeding trough. There's a strong church tradition that has no foundation in Scripture, but does not seem to be uh, challengeable from the standpoint of historical accuracy, a very strong tradition that says that this um, stable was actually in a cave, that which the tradition of the day was to find a cave where your animals could be kept and then you would build a house or an inn or whatever uh, very close to it. And so likely uh, Mary and Joseph went out to this cave since there was no room, the normal comforts in a, in a in a private room, a lodging in a house or in an inn, they went out to this cave, and there in a feeding trough, Mary found the only place to lay her firstborn child. Well, you all knew that much of the story, didn't you? But Luke changes the scene now. Okay, away from downtown Bethlehem, which was no big place. If you go on the Bethlehem walk that was announced today, you'll get, a, I think, a very good feeling of how small Bethlehem was. It was just a minor city. Uh, in fact, Micah could say that, you know, though you be small among all these great cities of Judea. Bethlehem is a small place. But we switch the scene from downtown Bethlehem out to the countryside where we see that there are flocks being kept by shepherds late at night. And there were shepherds in the same country abiding in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. Flocks were kept out in this area between the months of April and November. They would have been the warm months for a flock to be kept out. And uh, consequently, our ideas of the late December birth of Jesus uh, with the nice crisp uh, uh, air and the stars uh, uh, brightly twinkling and it being freezing cold is just a little bit hard to accept from the standpoint of historical accuracy. Uh, shepherds would not keep their sheep out 
uh, that kind of a night. It was probably a warm evening. They were out there at night on the hillside with their sheep. And verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. Now let me do just a little bit of biblical background research for you. Who was this angel? Well, if you'll turn to chapter 1 in Luke's Gospel, verse 11, you'll read, And there appeared unto him, Zacharias, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And so here is an angel of the Lord, the exact phraseology, coming to give a divine pronouncement. And in verse 19, the angel identifies himself. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God, and I was sent unto thee to bring thee these good tidings, good news. In verse 26 of chapter 1, now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Gabriel is the angel of the Lord who brings these good tidings. I believe it is Gabriel who appears to the shepherds that night. An angel of the Lord bringing again good tidings suddenly appears and is accompanied with blazing glory. The sign of the presence of the divine and so that the sudden appearance of this angel and the blazing glory round about the angel makes the shepherds to fear. And immediately the angel says, no, fear's not the appropriate response. Don't fear, but rather be filled with great joy. Don't fear. I bring you good news. Indeed, it's going to be good news for all the people. Some of your translations, I think, will mislead you. will say, good news for all people which isn't the point, although it is true enough that it's good news for all people. But here the angel is speaking of the people, the people of God, Israel. I bring you good tidings for all the people of God. And what is that good news? Verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Savior has been born. One of the I think shameful things about Christmas pageants, Christmas programs, is the way in which that kind of language is introduced just kind of out of the blue. We have people who haven't thought about Jesus for months and months and months, if at all, maybe for years, if at all, in their lives, and they go to a Christmas pageant, and in the midst of all the scenery and the decorations and the costumes and the music and all the rest, now we get these words, and there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. And we just kind of take that, you know, as though it was some fresh, creative piece of information, something new. But can you imagine how that would have struck the shepherds, who for years have heard the Old Testament read to them, and the prophecies of a coming Messiah, the anointed one who will lead Israel into freedom and to salvation. No, those words would have been heard by the shepherds much differently than the way the words are heard at our Christmas pageants today, much differently perhaps than even we hear them. Because even those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ hear those words in an accustomed fashion. We know what they mean. We are so used to it. This is Christmas time. These are the appropriate words. They just kind of fit in. But they didn't fit in that night. There was nothing to let these men out on the countryside know that something special was happening in Bethlehem. It was business as usual that night when all of a sudden the angel of the Lord in blazing glory is there saying, the Messiah has been born. 
And this night there has been born the Savior who is the Messiah, Christ. And remember that word Christ means anointed, coming from the Old Testament word Messiah. The Messiah, the Lord, Jehovah himself has been born. Verse 12 gives the sign so they'll be able to find this babe. Some have speculated, by the way, I don't particularly agree with this, uh, but it's interesting thought. Some have speculated that perhaps the shepherds owned the cave where Jesus was born, and that's why the angel expected them to be able to find the baby. The angel said, you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger, the well-known manger, the one that you would have been using tonight if it weren't for the fact that this couple has occupied it. I'm not sure of that, but nevertheless, in some way, the shepherds were going to be able to find a newborn baby. And the ironic thing about this, the sign is that the Messiah, this one who has angels come to announce his birth, is going to be laid in a feed trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And you'll be able to identify him in that way. Well, all of that is but the context. All of that is but the window dressing that leads up to what I really want you to focus on this morning, and that's verse 14, well, verses 13 and 14. And after all of this takes place, suddenly there appears with that angel of the Lord a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. And they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. Immediately, the angelic choir of heaven joins the angel of the Lord and sings what amounts to the first Christmas carol. And the message of that first Christmas carol is a proclamation of the results of the birth of Jesus. Based on the fact that the baby has been born, who is the Savior, Christ the Lord, that he's been born and laid in a manger, the angels now sing of the salvation Christ had come to work out in the world. And they describe that salvation in terms of glory and peace. Glory to God, peace among men. Notice in the first place then that this salvation that Jesus came to bring, this salvation gave glory to God. The angelic song of praise had been building for years and years and years. The angels raised this song a bit at creation as they praise God. Indeed, the book of Revelation tells us, round about the throne of God are myriads of angels who sing blessing and honor and glory and majesty and power and dominion and might be unto him who sits on the throne. That angelic song was raised a bit at the Exodus as God led his people out in a mighty symbolic act out of the oppression of Egypt. And that song gathered new notes and rose higher at the adoration of the angels that the prophets should speak of God himself coming to save his people. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that angels desired to look into these things that the prophets spoke of, that God would come and first suffer and then enter into his glory. But this time, when the angels saw God himself stoop from his glorious throne and become a human baby. A baby who had to be fed at the breast of his mother. Their notes were lifted higher and reached, I think, the uttermost 
and their scale of praise as they wonder at the fact that God should be so humiliated for the sake of his sinful creation. And their highest pinnacle of praise is poured out at God's highest act of mercy. Angels from the realms of glory wing their flight to worlds unknown. Imagine that the angels that spend their day, Revelation says, day and night without ceasing, singing the praise of God, have now come to the vicinity of Bethlehem to sing the praise of God born as a baby. And their hallelujahs were never more full and more strong, more magnificent than when they saw Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, to be the Redeemer of sinful men. You know, God is glorified by everything under his creative power, the Bible says. From every dewdrop of the morning to every blazing star of the sky, God receives glory. But even the whole universe cannot offer a song as sweet as the angels sang that night when they sang at the Incarnation. Glory to God in the highest. And just pause and consider that the melody of the angels is drawn out for the sake of a baby that's lying in a feed trough. A Savior born to men makes the angels praise God. Consider the attributes of God that they praise, the attributes that he displays in this, his wisdom, how he is both just and the justifier of his people by sending a Savior, how he is powerful that the God of the whole universe could become a man, how he is loving, condescending to the point of becoming like unto us, how he is faithful to all of the covenant promises of the Old Testament, and finally sending Jesus, his Son. Salvation. Salvation glorifies God in the very highest. Not our lowly conceptions of God, but God in his most exalted, majestic, transcendent being. Salvation praises God. So many people today look upon the plan of salvation and they think that it really brings despot to God. They despise God, that he should be so bloodthirsty as to make his son go to the cross to die. Or men praise themselves for their salvation, even if they believe the gospel and the historical facts of the matter. They praise themselves that they were wise enough to choose Jesus, or that they were better than other men, and they had hearts more prepared to receive the good news. But the angels understand the essence of salvation, and they say salvation means glory to God in the highest. Our view of salvation must not uncrown him and give the praise to mortal, sinful, foolish men as though we could freely choose in our own wisdom, in our own power, in our own natural love to follow after Christ. No, not at all. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone. Well, that was the first refrain in the first Christmas carol. Glory to God in the highest and the second is equally beautiful. This salvation brings peace to men on earth. In Isaiah, the ninth chapter, passage that we often read at this time of the year, Isaiah tells us that peace would be the crowning virtue of the Messiah's reign. Isaiah 9, verses 5 and 6, For, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government 
and of peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David to establish it with justice forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform it. Salvation will bring peace to men on earth. The angel's eternal song has now added a new stanza about peace for men. The angels did not sing of peace at creation. They did not sing of peace in the garden. When fierce swords of the cherubim were bared so that men would be kept from the salvation of God, kept from the tree of life, then the angels didn't speak of peace. They didn't sing of peace to men. There'd be no peace in man's breast, no peace among the families of men, no peace among neighbors, no peace among nations, as long as the Messiah has not come. There will be wars within and wars without, and a curse upon the ground, no peace for man. But now, now that Christ is born, now that the King has come, the angels add the second stanza. They not only sing glory to God in the highest, such glories he's always had, but now of all things, peace among men. There it is, wrapped in swaddling bands. Wrapped, as it were, in the flag of peace is the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. And now the angels can sing it. Peace among men. For only the work of Christ can put the cherubim sword away. Only the work of Christ can give life where men were dead. Only the work of Christ can bring reconciliation to men who are the enemies of God. Only the work of Christ can give peace within the heart. Only the work of Christ can bring reconciliation among men. And only the work of Christ as the king of the nations can finally bring the nations so that they will war no more. Who is this peace for? Unfortunately, the King James translation of this verse has so often been abused. This is peace for men of goodwill, right? For those who have golden hearts, who are well-intentioned, who are good neighbors and citizens. No. This is not peace for men who have goodwill in their own hearts. This is peace for men of God's goodwill. Men upon whom God has shown his favor. This is peace among men. Men upon whom God has shown his favor. This is peace among men of God's goodwill. God is no abstract notion, not some ideal in the sky. God is not removed, not a dignitary who cannot be bothered by the desires and the needs of men. But rather, God expresses his personal goodwill to men. It's amazing to me that God should have goodwill toward things that are so small, a speck in the universe, so nothing in his sight. As Daniel could say there, but the, all the nations that they are gathered together in the sight of God would be but the dust in the balance. We are nothing to him. Why should he show goodwill? And of all things, not only are we but a speck in the universe, we are a rebellious speck, a despicable speck in the universe. And God shows goodwill to men, to sinners, to his enemies. He shows goodwill. Whenever you're tempted to doubt God's personal existence, whenever you're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, whenever you're tempted to doubt 
and to question his care for you individually. When you think you've been neglected, when you think you've been treated hard, I want you to look at the manger. Because the angels say, there's the sign of God's good will to men. There is God's good will to a fallen race, to his own people. Indeed, no more compassionate goodwill has ever been seen than in God's bidding men. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. And there's the sign of God's reasoning with men. How unreasonable. God is a baby in a feed trough to be the king of the universe. The sign of God's goodwill to men. Well, this morning, how do you react to these angels? It is take this is another fascinating children's story at Christmas time. Another one of the fairy tales that we tell, and this makes us kind of feel good as though this was a happy place when in fact it's not. Oh, it's a historical reality we're talking about here. How do you react to these angels? Of course, it's superstitious to worship angels. It'd be a great misdemeanor against the sovereign king of the universe if we were to fall down and worship and adore these angels this morning. I'm not bidding you to do anything like that. But I think it would be quite proper to love and to have warm affection for these angels, not to worship them, but to feel very close to them. I want you to mark the holy character of the angels. We're not talking about demons here. We're talking about unfallen angels, pure, heavenly creatures. I want you to think throughout the scripture of the many deeds of sympathy and kindness they have performed toward men for the sake of God. The amazing thing is that the angels came to sing a song that had nothing to do with them. For you see, Christ did not stoop from his throne to die for rebel fallen angels. Indeed, the Bible teaches that once an angel falls, there is no redemption for an angel. So the angels didn't sing of the salvation that Christ had brought for the angelic host. Isn't it just a little bit fascinating that they don't murmur when Christ arrays himself in a body, the body of an infant, to die for the race of mankind instead of for fallen angels? Isn't it amazing that they don't envy the human race? They don't stand off kind of with the kind of umfrage thing, well, why do they get this kind of special favor? Why don't the angels react that way? I think that's the way we would react. The angels do not have the opportunity of salvation. They probably, in fact, according to biblical teaching, they do, as a matter of fact, wonder why God should care for these rebels. The angels are free from pride. And it's quite obvious here because they're not ashamed to tell the news to humble shepherds. Angels are willing to come to shepherds out on the fields. They don't go to the palace of the king. They don't go to Caesar's, emperor's palace. They don't expect to be warmly received and made a lot of. They'll go out in the countryside. I think men would much rather desire to go to kings. And men find it very hard to condescend to preach to a humble crowd. But the angels didn't. They had no pride, no envy, no disdain for the human race. And it's interesting to me that they didn't tell this. They didn't sing this song with indifference, much like we sing Sunday morning. They didn't tell this message as though it was just some kind of a footnote to universal history. <coughs> no, they came with, ex 
sided song with resplendent notes and sang the first Christmas carol. I think this one incident in angelic history, this one incident alone ought to weld our hearts to them. To think that angels would sing joyously for our salvation. How did they tell the story? They told it with gladness and joy. They told it in song, not in heavy prose. Indeed, I dare say they told the good news as if it had been for them, when in fact it was for us. Oh, don't worship the angels. That'd be highly inappropriate, but I hope you love them. I hope you just love these fellow creatures of ours. Oh, much more glorious than us, to be sure. But the angels are part of our anticipation of heaven. We will join their chorus someday. And they minister, according to the book of Hebrews, day by day to us. They minister to the sons of Abraham for the sake of salvation. So have you heard this first Christmas carol? Have you heard it in your heart this morning? Can you sing with the angels? Well, if you've heard that Christmas carol, then doesn't your heart stir with happiness? If the angels ushered in Christ's birth with singing, shouldn't we sing? Shouldn't we rejoice? Shouldn't we be glad in our hearts? So often we make our religion into a somber thing with gloomy looks and heavy theology. We should have been there when the angels sang. We should sing and sing and sing until if we weren't already hoarse because of what's going around today, we'd be hoarse from singing. We should sing and sing and sing until we enter into the heavenly chorus for all eternity. We need a singing Christianity, not a groaning Christianity. For I don't think God ever intended to reduce our pleasures. God only rather wanted to give us the enjoyment of abundant and eternal life. Moreover, we need to remember that the angels sang and rejoiced with glad hearts over against the complaining and resentful way in which we present our religion so often. The angels did not tell this story with groans and with sobs and with sighs. And so, let others moan and let others mourn and let others be sad. We will rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, Paul says, rejoice. Especially this week, we're not going to be ashamed to be glad and to let others know we are glad. The other religions of the world can be somber. The other religions of the world can be down. The other religions of the world can be sad. But we are glad and joyful. Christmas reminds us of that fact. And so let's let joy and gladness fill our homes and, and be evident to our friends and our employees and our employers. Indeed, let's resemble the angels for a short while this year. If the damned are miserable, then by all means let the saved be happy like angels. And so I ask you, if you've heard the angels sing this first Christmas carol, doesn't your heart stir with happiness? And if you've heard the angels sing that Christmas carol, don't you rest with confidence now? God has sent the angels to announce our Savior and salvation. And they sang with supreme assurance and the appropriate emotion of joy that salvation has truly come. And if you've heard this Christmas carol, glory to God in the highest and peace among men on whom his favor rests, then don't you long for peace? Just look at the world. 
a terribly unpeaceful place it is. Look at your family and how unpeaceful it is. Look at your own life and think of the lack of peace there. Look at your church. Look at those with whom you're supposed to be Christian friends. Don't you long for peace? Salvation brings peace between sinners and God. How much more then should it bring peace between sinners and sinners? And so, this Christmas season, let's make peace with those around us. Let's seek the peace of the world. Let's seek to overcome the offense we've been to friends. Let's seek to find peace in the midst of angry families. Let's find peace with our hated opponents. And then we can sleep in peace, knowing that our hearts are at peace with God. Let's make this a happy and a confident and a peaceful Christmas season because we, too, can sing with the angels the first Christmas carol. We can sing the angelic Christmas carol throughout this week and the next, indeed, throughout the year. For we want to make this a time of true praise and adoration. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men on whom his good will resides. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, fill our hearts with the song this day. Make us more like the angels. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.